Welcome to the Mom and Dot 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 Podcasts. We're your hosts, Suzanne Kearns and Missy Stevens. We want to help you through everything that happens in the ellipses, from your professional life to your emotional health. You're a mom and so much more. Let's figure out what comes next together. Welcome to the Mom and Dot 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 Podcast. I'm Missy Stevens, Mom and Dot 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 writer, foster child advocate, and this week, dog doctor. It's been a week, y'all. It's oh been a week. Oh my gosh. And I'm Suzanne Kearns, Mom and Dot 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 writer, LGBTQ and sex ed advocate. And today, recovering from a kind of a spontaneous whirlwind accepted college student visit up in the very chilly Syracuse and uh, Rochester area. So exciting. Exciting, exciting. We're getting there. We're so close. <laughs> yeah, <and> speaking <laughs> of excited, today we are really excited to be talking with Yael Schoenbrunn. Yael is a clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University co-host of Psychologist Off the Clock podcast and author of Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much, which is most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) She is also parent of three. Yael's writing on work, parenting, and relationships has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and more. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this podcast is the perfect one for me because I write all about so many of the roles, right? Mom and so many other things. Exactly. Yes. And love learning about you through your bio. And we've already been getting to know you through your podcast, which makes it extra fun. But for our listeners who aren't as familiar with you, can you give us a little one-on-one and share where your career started and any key pivots or decision points along the way? Sure. Yeah. So I am a PhD clinical psychologist and during my postdoc became a parent and that was very exciting and and really in the plans. Like I had decided that I wanted an academic career and I was probably going to have a private practice and that I would be a mother and I had a flexible job and a supportive partner. But when I became a parent, I was kind of like, oh, shoot, all my good plans kind of got upended because this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I'm kind of miserable. And so what I did in that moment of life was a lot of crying and a lot of soul searching and then a whole lot of reading, right? Nerdy people like me go to the bookstore and the library and are like, what am I going to do? How do I learn about this? What's the philosophy? What's the theory? What are the practices? And what I found in the bookstores was helpful on the one hand because it was sort of pointing to, you know, a lot of the challenges of working parenthood have to do with the structure of the society and unequal marriages and the way that workplaces are quite inflexible. But I also felt kind of depressed about it because I was like, well, there isn't much I can do about society or the laws or the flexibility of workplaces. And then there's another genre of books that was all about time management, which wasn't really my issue. I was pretty efficient with my time. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I actually think that part of what isn't getting talked about is the psychological element to this and sort of the identity shift. But also part of what I'm particularly interested in is positive psychology, sort of like the ways that we can use our approach to life and our behaviors and our attitudes to create a more positive and enduring kind of happiness. And I'm my history is a relationship researcher. So I look at things from a real relational lens. And what really wasn't talked about at all was the relationship between roles. So I started thinking about that. And then I started diving into the academic literature. And what I found there was really cool because not only does positive psychology show a variety of ways that we can inhabit lives that are really packed full in very enjoyable ways, but it also shows that the relationship between roles has 
a lot of complexity that doesn't get talked about in a lot of the literature. And so that's where this book came out of. It actually started because one day my kids went down for a nap and I was like, I have something different to say about working parenthood. And I started writing this essay and the nap was just about over. And then I Googled how to submit op-ed and the top of the page was New York Times. And I was like, why not? Oh, my gosh. I, I love it. It was like <laughs> lightning strike. It hasn't happened since. And I have definitely submitted to the New York Times since then. But it got published and it went pretty viral. And I'm still getting just last week I got a response from it. It went out in 2014. So it was a long time ago. But it turned out that people really want a different way to think about working parenthood and to sort of find ways to make what is right now sort of aside from we want society to progress. We want Mm -hmm. maternity, paternity leave. We want social structures that are more just and humane. But in the meantime, there are things that we can do using the power of psychology to make it a much more enjoyable experience, a much more skillful and successful experience for us all. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love it so much. I, I mean, that's that's so much what we're trying to do. I mean, yeah. prim- our primary audience is, uh, or at least it was intended to be stay-at-home moms, but we I find that more and more we have working moms listening just because there are so many philosophies or practices or lessons <laughs> through psychology that could be applied to either. It doesn't, I don't know, we all go through this identity crisis once yes. the, the kids come into our lives. And I don't think it depends on whether we're bringing home a paycheck or not, how right. valuable these can be. Right. And even if we don't have traditional paid work, I think most parents inhabit multiple roles, right? We're the child of aging parents. We're pet owners, as you guys both are. <laughs> yes. As you That's know, the most complicated role. Right? It's very complicated and very demanding. Yeah. Um, we have hobbies. We have responsibilities to the community through our spiritual life or through the PTO. So part of me actually feels a little bit regretful that the title of the book involves like work specifically and parenting specifically, because I think a lot of the wisdom that's in there is really just about inhabiting multiple roles that compete for our attention, our time and our energy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what science and psychology has to say about it really applies to anybody who inhabits multiple roles, which is most of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're both primarily were stay-at-home moms for many, many years, although we did so many other things, like you say. And we really like that idea of taking away those unhelpful labels. And you talk about that in the book, like, how do we start to unhook from unhelpful labels? And what is that process? Yeah. So I practice a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's a terrific treatment. And we talk about it a lot on the podcast that I co-host called Psychologist Off the Clock. Sorry for the quick pitch in there. Oh, please um, do. But for, people, pitch but for people who are interested in, in finding out more. And I, and I write about it in the book. And it has these six core processes. And one of them has to do with unhooking from unhelpful labels, and it's called diffusion. So the idea is that our mind is really attached to words because it's part of how we understand the world. And that in and of itself isn't a problem, but sometimes we get very attached to words that are very unhelpful, or as we say in acceptance and commitment therapy, it's unworkable. And what that means is the way that we get attached to particular words can really interfere with our ability to kind of show up fully as the kind of person that we want to be and to be building the kind of life that we want to live. And so some of the examples are things like, I'm a terrible mom. So what happens when I think to myself, I'm a terrible mom, is that I get all shame ridden and I kind of curl up inside and I get really grumpy and I'm not open and I'm not mindful and I'm not present and open to my kid or to myself or to my partner. And that really is not how I want to show up 
in my role as a parent, let alone in my role as a partner, let alone in my role as an adult functioning in the world. And so when we get really rigidly attached, particularly to negative labels, we find that happening where we kind of retract and we become less like the kind of person that we most want to be. And so the process of unhooking is really helpful because it gives us a better leeway to lean into the kind of person that we more want to be. And because our, our minds are just wired to, like, humans tell stories, we, we say words, it's part of how we develop coherence and understanding in a very complicated world that is constantly throwing information that is very confusing and complex. And so we're not going to not think words, but we can be deliberate about which ones we pay more attention to and which mm -hmm. ones we choose to unhook from. So the label of I'm a terrible mother, for example, we can start to notice that. And the simplest unhooking exercise is to say, I'm having the thought that I'm a terrible mother. It's so simple, but you just put in that little preface and it gives you just a touch of distance to that uh -huh. phrase, to that word. And it gives you an opportunity to recognize my mind is saying something, right? It's not truth with a capital T. It's just a product of the mind that gets generated by the mind's activity. And once I unhook from it, I can choose. Do I pay more attention to it or do I pay less attention to it? In the book, I tell a story about a comedian mother who had this thought that she was a terrible mother and she would go out after, like kind of she would leave right around her kid's bedtime and her fifth grade son would always be snarky to her and say, oh, you're leaving your kids to go, you know, hang out at CD bars. And it really like caused her to curdle inside and it made yes. her a lot less funny and it made her kind of grumpy around the kids and kind of dreading that nighttime moment where she would leave. and so. I started talking to her about this idea of like unhooking from unhelpful labels. And she said, you know, just even that conversation opened me up to ask my son, what do you really think about me going out to do comedy every night? And he said, I think it's so cool. Right. She hadn't even thought to ask him, what did he really think? Because he's like the son of a sarcastic comedian. So he says yes. snarky things. It wasn't actually right. what he thought. And just that distancing from that thought gave her this opportunity to check, like, how true is this? Right. It's not helpful. It's not even true. Right. And so maybe I don't need to buy into it. And so recognizing that we get tied to words, recognizing that they can be unhelpful, kind of opens up a whole new series of options for us to kind of check those words, to unhook from them, to adopt different ones, or just to not pay too much attention to them if we find that even if they're true, they're not very helpful. I love that, that example. I had that a couple weeks too. ago when I, I kind of joked about it, but I think it really was the first of my son's significant experiences in school that I've ever missed, but I went to book club instead. And it's not like I made a decision whether to go accept a big award, you know, or something <laughs> at, or his thing. I mean, it was book clubs I and mean, people cancel book club all the time. And it, but it just felt like I needed to do this. I don't know why, maybe because we've been doing this podcast for so long. I just felt a boundary need <laughs> pop up, yeah. but he, kind of the sarcastic kid and i don't think he would really care at all he's like oh sure you need to go to your book club instead of come to my recital or you know it was his band performance and it did i was like oh gosh i'm this bad mom this is very selfish of me but it's just not it's you know what there's so many things that i have been there 
there for or yes. whatever. But even the fact that I had to justify like, okay, I have to go through this checklist of all these things that I have done right because this thing is like, quote unquote, not doing the right thing or not doing yeah. the thing to support my kid. I just want to also make a comment that I think that this is something that it's like a narrative that our culture gives us that we mm. should as yes. parents be there for all the things for our kids. And and that's not entirely accurate. It's actually great to not show up for your kids because a couple of reasons. One is it gives them a chance to to be independent. Like you don't need to be there for them to do something that is wonderful, right? They can still feel wonderful about it without mm -hmm. you bearing witness. And like that's mm -hmm. a great opportunity for them to practice that. And then it gives them an opportunity to connect to other caregivers. So maybe like your partner went or maybe a friend went. And then it gives them an opportunity to share with you. Like, hey, you weren't there. Can I tell you about this cool thing that I did on my own? Mm -hmm. And then they get to be the informer for you. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but I think it teaches them that we don't always have to make decisions that are in the service of our family. And because one day they're going to be a grown up and you're not going to want them to martyr themselves for their children. You're going to want them to find that healthy balance between, OK, I'm there for you in, in important times. And also sometimes I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be nurturing what's important for me to be a whole healthy person. And ultimately, that's going to allow me to come back to you in a healthier fashion. So there's so many reasons that we shouldn't just, you know, bow before this idea of like sacrifice everything for the kids. Mm -hmm. And it's both for ourselves and for them and for our relationship. It's so interesting to me that that's you've been there for everything. You know, we go to all the things you were missing one thing for something that was important to you. And you immediately told yourself, oh, maybe I'm a bad mom. Like yes. we so quickly go to those unhelpful labels. And I there is that societal pressure when you're talking about that. I was like, yes, that's I often go through the checklist of like, what will other people think Yes, when I make this decision yeah. instead totally. of the checklist of what decision do I need to make for my health, my family's health, whatever the case may be. Yeah. It's and like what works what for right, works for you and what works for your kid. And we're so we're social creatures. Humans are social creatures. And so we're wired to worry about the judgment of others. And again, that's not something that we can stop our brains from doing, but we can choose to unhook from it and say, well, is that a judgment that I need to be worried about? Or is that just a judgment that's going to come up? Because people are going to judge no matter what you do, because that right, you're going to judge no matter what anybody else does, because that's what the human brain does. And it's in part to kind of make sure that within our community, we're doing OK. We're sort of connected enough to be safe. So we can't stop our brain from judging and we can't stop other people's brains from judging, but we can decide how much we allow our decisions to be driven by the fear of judgment. That's a choice that we have. And, and recognizing that and unhooking gives you more power to make those deliberate choices. Yes. And we loved how the book actually starts out with this idea of knowing your values, which I think allows you to really be able to unhook and make sure that you mm -hmm. are weighing your decisions against your own values instead of the mom next door's values or whoever the case may be. And we've been interviewing coaches, therapists, all kinds of experts for the past two years. And pretty much everybody agrees on the, the first place you need to start is making sure that you have mm -hmm. a really a really steady idea of what your core values are. And so can you walk through how you take a look at core values and how you see them play for, we can't change society. So how can we change how we are thinking about our values so that we don't really care what society says? <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And I have this Big ask. probably overly optimistic belief that if we each individually work on clarifying our own values, that we can sort of a grassroots pathway change society. Yes. <laughs> it's going to take a while and, and a lot of effort, but that's OK. In the meantime, clarifying your values can help you stay clear on what you want to do for yourself and your family. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, values clarification is one of the core processes, and we define them pretty specifically. So values are kind of how you want to show up moment to moment. So it can mean persisting in a behavior if it makes sense. It can also mean desisting, stopping a behavior if it makes sense. And when I say makes sense, it's sort of like what matters to you? How do you want to show up given what you know about yourself, given the context that you're in, given the role that you're in? And using that clarity to drive the behavioral choices that you make. And this really is a useful practice to clarifying your values because we live in such a society that is constantly, you know, confronting us with messages of what we should be doing or what we shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing. And certainly this is true in parenting, but it's true in professional lives. It's true in like pretty much any role that we have. And it's so easy to kind of be driven and to just kind of drop into, okay, well, I'll just do what what other people tell me to do. But there's so much misinformation and misguidance. And and sometimes it really just doesn't work for you or your family. So doing these kinds of exercises, and I'll, I'll share some of the questions that I ask patients in the therapy room that can help people to really clarify, like, what matters most to you? So one of the questions that I have people ask themselves is, to consider a difficult patch of life that you've been through and what are you most proud of having done or having stood for in that patch of life? Mm. And how does that inform how you'd like to handle it the next time? Another question that I really like to ask parents is, what are the main ways that you'd like your children to see and remember you in this particular phase or in this particular role? So what, 20 years down the line, when they're adults, how do you want them to say, you know what, my mom provided me this really terrific model because she showed up in this way, right? And to use that as a way to sort of organize your behavioral choices. And then I also really like yourself thinking forward. So think forward 30 years and imagine your older self looking back on your current self and ask yourself what way of being would make you most proud, right? Mm. And I think in the most difficult of circumstances, these kinds of questions help you to clarify But what's important to recognize, and I share a story in the book of myself doing a values clarification when my father was dying and I didn't know if I should stay by his bedside or go back home across the country to my family where my little kids were waiting and my partner needed to work and my mother-in-law needed to go back to her home. And there was, there's no right answer, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm either going to not be there for my father's final moments or I'm not going to be there to support my little kids and to help my husband who had just started a new job and my mother-in-law really needed to go back. It was like one of those impossible decisions. Yeah. But what I was able to do is, is ask myself, what do I want to stand for? Recognizing like there's no good outcome here. Like they all kind of suck. Like mm-hmm. my father is dying and it's heartbreaking and my kids need me and I don't know what to do and I'm overwhelmed. But asking myself and, and what I did in that moment was I asked, what, what do I think my father would want me to stand for? What was his mm. guiding value? What would he have advised me to do? And using that to guide my choice. And it wasn't an easy choice and it wasn't a perfect choice. And I still don't feel totally good about it because there was, n- there was no opportunity to feel good. But I feel good knowing that I asked myself what my father would want and thinking through what I wanted to stand for in that really impossible moment. And so I think What I'm trying to clarify here is that it doesn't help you get to a quote-unquote right answer because sometimes there is no quote-unquote right answer to Mm. get to. It's not available. 
But what we can do is moment to moment decide how we most want to show up. And that can be something to be proud of. I mean, that's brilliant. We want there to be a right answer. And mm-hmm. then we want to know the answer. And I think more than more than knowing the answer, we don't. There isn't one. It didn't come out real clearly, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, not, it's not, that's always kind of gray most of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just even thinking, Suzanne, you were sharing that, you know, your child just, you know, made a college decision. And it's kind of that too, right? Like, who knows if it's the right one? And I'm yes. curious how you how you guided your daughter to make that decision, because I think values are really helpful. And and then recognizing that no matter where you go, you still have your values, right? Yeah. To guide you in the next step. You know, the best thing that could have possibly happened was actually doing this podcast for the past two years and having the benefit of talking to so many career coaches and this idea mm-hmm. of there is no right answer. It's just yeah. like whatever feels like the next right step. And then you you sit there and you evaluate and then you take the next best right step. And that may be a feeling in your gut. It might be more of a intellectual decision. It's yeah. And so that was kind of it. It was a little bit of a, you know, pros cons list type of approach, but it was also a, how did you feel when you were at a particular school on a campus, whatever the case may be? She had one school in particular that we thought was going to be 100% her school. And when she got there, she was just like, she couldn't even define it. And we're like, that's fine. Listen to listen to that voice because it's yeah. going to come up with boys you go on dates with. It's going to come up with all kinds of things. Go ahead and just say, it. I don't get it, but OK, I'm just going to I'm going to listen to it. But one of the things that really made me feel comfortable during the tour that we did at RIT is hearing it echoed throughout all of the different levels of staff, whether it be professors or the counselors that were there or you know people in the administration. They were all very much in tune to this. Your kid is not whatever degree they are choosing for their major they're going to learn things that are going to help propel them in all these different directions. And we're here just to kind of help guide them to that next best step. And so that that's just one of the things that has mm-hmm. stuck with me, coach after coach after coach, is this idea that you don't have to plan. You know, the interview question, where do you see yourself five years, 10 years in the future, is an interesting guide for today, but it's not... Yeah, a lot happens. Yeah, a lot happens. So Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of how we have, have looked at it. But oh well, my gosh, that story that though in in the book was so powerful. And okay. I, I appreciate you sharing it here as well for the people who haven't read the book yet. Because yeah. I do think it is it is the biggest, most significant example of no good or, or no right choices. No, no right, right choices. choices. No and you right can't choice. do them both. Sometimes you can't do both and. Exactly. Right. It's nice when you can. And sometimes we need to explore that option. But sometimes it's it's either or. We can only mm-hmm. be in one place at a time. The The other thing that sort of occurred to me is is this metaphor that we often use for explaining values, which is um, we can think about goals as like where we want to get to, which is what you were just referring to is like, it's nice. It gives you a direction. You know, I want to get to the top of the mountain. But values are more about how you're taking the journey, recognizing that sometimes you're going to have to pivot. But you can choose moment to moment what you prioritize in how you take the journey. You can, for example, take it really mindfully and slowly and really enjoy the sensations of the sun against your skin and the smell of nature. You can do it with somebody else and really be connected. But you can, you know, talk to them or, or you can be connected in silence. You can try to get a really good workout or, or you mm-hmm. can really try to relax into it. And then the values work 
might change if like all of a sudden weather comes up and there's like a giant blizzard. You might decide that now is not the time to get a good workout or socialize. It's actually to prioritize your safety. And, and by clarifying your values and being able to pivot in that moment where things change or you have a new realization, that is going to change your goal. And, and that's okay, right? Because you're using your values to guide what you're doing. And ultimately, you can still try to get to the top of the mountain, but moment to moment, you got to make the choice of which value to use to guide your decisions based on what's going on around you, what's going on inside you, and what, what matters most to you in that moment. And so yeah. it's, it's really about the flexibility and a willingness to kind of hold the outcome lightly and to really focus most on, like, how am I going to show up moment to moment? Because we don't have perfect control over the outcome, unfortunately. We'd like to, but we don't. Yes, <laughs> we don't. And that moment to moment is really freeing. Like, yeah. I just have this. Let me figure out what's next. Yeah. But it reminded me of resilience, which is something you talk about a little bit. And we spend a lot of time as parents trying to help our kids become more resilient because we don't always know what the next right thing is. So maybe we think it's right and it turns out wrong and you have to figure out how to pivot after that. So what does that look like as adults? How can we help build resilience? I personally sometimes really feel like you knock me down once. I'm like, well, okay, that was it. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> meant to be. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, I guess that was wrong. And then I, don't, I don't know that I have the grit that I really would like to have. Um, so, I mean, how do we start building that? Can we build that when we're, say, 49, 50 years old? Oh, totally. I was actually just reading this terrific book. Oh, you know what? I'll hold on it until the end of the episode. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. It's a really good book. Um. But yes, our brains are very plastic at 4950, at 80, whatever age, if you're still alive, you can still grow and learn and decide to do things differently. It's not easy, right? Behavior change is, is tough and building resilience is certainly tough, but it is worth the effort. And I will also say that, you know, grit means like sticking to something, whereas resilience right. is more about bouncing back, but they're really related. They have to do with kind of a toughness. And, and we do, we try as parents to instill those ideas and those practices in our kids, because we know that it'll help them to be more successful and to weather life, what mm -hmm. life throws at them more easily. Yeah. But we do. I think as parents, we forget, like we have to also do that. And part actually, I think of what can happen when we notice our kids being fragile can actually be quite empowering. Like I can work on my own resilience and use that as a model for them to build a bit more toughness because we don't have perfect control over what they do, but our kids are always watching us. And so it's an opportunity to sort of, you know, teach them through your own actions. So again, resilience is about bouncing back from adversity while grit is about this kind of never give it up attitude. And they are related. But practices to build resilience that I often talk about and that I certainly talk about in the book are things like managing your energy, right? It's hard to be resilient when we're just giving out all of our energy to everybody else. And so yes. part of what I think causes parents to be less resilient is that we don't take very good care of ourselves. And yeah. so if we do want to teach our kids to be resilient, that's a part of what we need to model for them is learning how to rest, learning how to do things that nourish our souls. and. It's not selfish. It's actually one of the most selfless things that you can do because it helps you to stay strong for the people that you love in a more enduring way. Yeah. You can't bounce back if you can't move. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you can't be there for people if you have nothing to give. Mm -hmm. right? right. We can't be there for our kids if, if we're just totally tapped out. And so if we are very deliberate about caring for ourselves, we will have more to give. 
And I think, again, that's something that we as parents forget. It's sort of, you know, you know it's that metaphor of like, you got to put your oxygen mask on first. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know it cognitively because it's sort of everywhere, but we really, it has to be a practice. And, and I will say that for me as a parent, it's something that I practice on a daily basis. It's like, what do I need to do for myself today so that I can be a better parent? Because when I just do for others. And, you know, I'm a therapist and I'm a parent and I'm a partner. And like a lot of the roles that I have are about giving to other people. And I often get pretty grumpy by the end of the day if I don't conserve something for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Like we all do. (laughs) The other practice that I really love is um, self-compassion. I'm sure that you guys have talked about this on your podcast before, but it's one of my favorite set of practices and there's so much research backing it. But, you know, part of resilience is sort of giving ourselves grace when things don't go right. And Missy, just as you were saying, it's kind of like we get hit and we're like, oh, I give up. Like, you know, I suck. I can never do that. But instead, you know, this practice of self-compassion, which actually has three components. So the first is just making mindful contact with whatever the experience that you're having is. So like, I feel ashamed of myself or embarrassed or inadequate or like a failure, right? right? And just allowing yourself to feel that way without shutting it down. And the second practice is self-kindness. So instead of saying, well, you suck, don't bother to do that, you could never, <laughs> think about, Missy, what you would say to Suzanne. You wouldn't probably say to her, you suck, don't bother to try that again. You'd say like, <laughs> she might. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. I probably wouldn't, though. She's like, please <laughs> stop doing that, Suzanne. <laughs> We've been waiting for you to find out that wasn't for you. No, <laughs> I've been waiting for you to stop trying that. Stop embarrassing yourself. <laughs> More likely, you would say something to the level of, you know what? Everybody messes up sometimes. Don't take it to heart. Don't worry. Like, Mm -hmm. you're awesome. You got this. I got your back. I believe in you. You're going to be fine. Like, take a a day or two to lick your wounds and then let me know how I can support you. And then can we say that kind of thing, that kind of message? Can we communicate that kind of message to ourselves? And for a lot of people who are really rough on themselves, who are really engaged in that self-critical narrative, this can feel super awkward. And so I always suggest think of it like learning a new language. It feels kind of weird in your mouth at first. And what it takes to get it to feel more natural is practice. And so be willing to Mm -hmm. practice it. And then the third component of self-compassion is common humanity. It's recognizing that we all have moments where we feel totally embarrassed and like failures and inadequate and like the world kind of did not coordinate with us very well today. (laughs) And that's just being human. Like it's not because you suck like you know, across the world, people are having that experience. And, you know, you could actually reach out to a friend and like get common humanity that way. Or you can just make contact with yourself, give yourself a hug. Or you can just, you know, do sort of a a mindfulness exercise of recognizing like lots of parents around the world feel this way. Lots of humans around the world feel this way. So again, it's um, mindfulness, you know, mindful acceptance, awareness of of the experience. The second is self-kindness directed to yourself. And the third is common humanity. Love it. I really love that coming humanity. Know. Oh, we're getting so close to the end. I'm going through my list of things that I wanted to ask you. I'm picking know, some favorites. Uh, well, okay. We may not have time to talk about this, but I love the idea of a to don't list. So y'all have to read the book. I'm sure just by the name of it, you can, you can, yes. or kind of this stop, basically a stop doing list. Um, yes. I just think that's so refreshing. So I think that's something that y'all could put on your to do list is to do this to don't or stop doing list <laughs> of some of the things that you're doing that are not feeding what you want to be doing. Oh, do I want to talk about what do you think? Calm the elephant. Or a I want to talk breaks. about calm the elephant just because I, I, I know that 
Okay. term. So let's just dive into okay. that for a few Buy minutes. Buy the book to get time. more information on restorative breaks, because I think that feeds into what we were just yes. talking about. But I loved the part of the book about Calm the Elephant. So yeah. let's, let's finish up with that, I think. Okay. Yeah. So Calm the Elephants comes from a metaphor that was given by Jonathan Haidt, who's a moral psychology researcher. And I really recommend his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. I also really like, um, it's called The right, The Righteous Mind. Um, how politics and religion divide good people is really, really interesting stuff. Oh, but he I talks need to it, read that right now. Yeah, they're both for They're both real. Yeah, everybody read that before the next holiday family gathering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll read it's, that it's, today. Okay, <laughs> it's a great book. But what he talks about in his research shows is that feelings lead to reasoning, not the other way around. And so when we're feeling away, we often come up with a story, right? Our minds are these little story generators or these big story generators that come up with reasons that we feel away. And so when we're when we're feeling uncomfortable, when we're feeling depleted, when we're feeling starved for, you know, care of some sort, we sometimes get emotionally activated. And then what happens is we get angry and it's often with our partner. So this this concept comes up actually in my chapter on relationships and I didn't mention this before, but my specialize in couples therapy in my private practice and, and my history is as a relationship researcher, which I think I actually did mention. So I think about this a lot in, in the context of marital relationships or romantic relationships, but this can be true with our kids too. And I know for myself that my elephant gets really activated when I've had a really long day and then my kids ask me for things, right? Which they do because they're <laughs> little and that's what they do. Yes. <laughs> oh, carry gosh, yeah. carry my shoes with you while you're covered in every backpack that I have. Oh, yeah. Oh. There's this great comic that I always think about of like this mom who's got like 20 bags and this kid is carrying like a stick and is like, mom, can you carry this? Yes. And your mom's like got like 80 packs like loaded on her oh my god i have to send you the comic adrian hedger from hedger humor actually did a cartoon of one of my facebook posts that is pretty much exactly at that a mom coming home from the pool with like all this stuff so i'll have to send yes, you the from picture. the pool oh my god and yeah, the kid is so... like i have my wet goggles mom you're yes, like you're yeah. carrying <laughs> yeah, one of mine literally fell down on a boardwalk at the beach one day carrying like the tiniest plastic truck. And he was like, I just can't anymore. And his dad and I like had a yeah. tent and an yeah. umbrella yeah. and a cooler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the cooler. And the, I'm yeah. hot and sweaty yeah. and I hate being hot and sweaty and I hate the sand. And I'm like trying to keep it all together. And... Oh, my gosh. Okay. And then this brave little child has the nerve to ask oh, you. Yeah. Yes. And my elephant goes on a rampage. Yes. And your elephant goes on the rampage. And the problem is, is that we think that the rider, our rational intellect, is in charge. But if you think about this metaphor and you've got this elephant that's all activated and this tiny little rider sitting on top who's like, no, calm down, elephant, you're okay. <laughs> the elephant is not really going to listen. Like if the elephant is super pissed off and wants to go left and you're like, no, 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 it makes more sense to go right. Your elephant is way more powerful than you and way more full of energy than you just by virtue of his size and, and the way that that emotion can move through that giant body. And so to imagine that your rider, your cognitive, rational self could have much influence if the elephant is really activated is simply unrealistic. And so rather than put all of your expectations that the rider can regain control over this really overwhelmed or depleted or upset elephant, 
the better way to expend your energy is to try to calm the elephant down because the rider and the elephant can collaborate much more effectively with one another when the elephant is calm. But if you expect them to collaborate when the elephant is activated and wanting to do a totally different thing than the rider wants to do, you're just not going to be very successful. And so the the strategy when you're feeling high emotions or when your partner is feeling high emotions or when your child is feeling high emotions is not to go the rational way, but instead to calm the elephant down. And some of the tools are validation. Some of them are self-soothing, like touch is really helpful. Some of them are activities that are calming, like listening to calming music or splashing some water on your face or getting into nature. And so If you're somebody who, like me, is a highly emotional person, it can even be helpful to kind of think through strategies outside of the moment and just have like a note in your phone with like, here are some things I can do when I'm really activated. Because the other thing that elephants, when they're super activated, are not very good at doing is remembering all the things. (laughs) That's just not available. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline and like we're just not thinking clearly. And so to have little prompts available, like when you're feeling this way, do this, right? Try that. It can be really, really helpful to calm the elephant down. Once the elephant is calmer, then the rider and the elephant can go back to collaborating. You can either, you know, be more collaborative with your partner, with your child, or or just with yourself. I know. (laughs) I know. We could just do a whole episode on that. So my elephant needs some work. (laughs) (laughs) Elephant. When do you get the tranquilizer out? I know. Oh I know. I had one of my kids asked me for something last night and it was, I did not handle it very well. I was like, you have to hear me say, I cannot talk about this right now, but I said it really firmly, you know, and he was like, what? And I was just yeah. like, enough is enough. Like He's you were like, asking me I just me want for dinner, mom. you <laughs> <laughs> like, I haven't eaten since breakfast. No, I'm just, it's fine. No, but, and it was something that we did not need to talk about yesterday. And I knew that in my logical parent mind i knew it didn't your writer knew <laughs> yeah my writer knew but i i mean the minute he asked i was like i can't even believe you have the nerve to bring this up you know what kind of day we all had and you're bringing this up I mean, he's, yeah he's 14 and he's <laughs> thinking about his thing you know yes. but, whew, yeah the elephant trampled a lot of things in a well few minutes. let let me just say though that i have an elephant who totally gets activated and the way that i now think about it is you know, I have all sorts of practices that I use to keep the elephant a little bit calmer and strategies to sort of notice when he's starting to get a little amped up so they can catch it early and, and, you know, turn a different direction. But invariably, like I'm human too, even though I teach this for a living and write about it and constantly talk about it, like I am imperfect. And you know what? That's terrific because then I have a chance when I mess up to say, oh, you know, my elephant, I don't necessarily use this metaphor with my kids, but right. I was really tired. I did not act in line with my best self. I messed up. I'm really sorry. So apologize. That's great. But also I'm working on that. Here's some things that I'm trying. What do you do? You know, depending on how old your child is. I have a six-year-old, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And I talk to each of them. Like, what kinds of things do you do when you're you're feeling like all emotional and you and you're very likely to act in ways that are not reflective of how you most want to be? What are ways that you can calm yourself down? What are ways that you can get back in line? And then I show them that, you know, both that you can mess up and apologize and repair, and that's a part of any good relationship. And number two, that this is a work in progress for most people. Most people are going to have elephants that that act up, that go against the writer's wishes, and that do embarrassing things that you wish that they wouldn't do. And that's okay, too, right? That's a part of learning and growing, and we can always do better. And, and that's terrific, like, to have a plan in place and to always be learning and growing along with that plan. 
Love it. I'm so glad we ended with that. I've, that was I such know. a good, yeah. And oh, definitely so... get the book for even more information. Yes. On taming yes. your elephant. <laughs> well, before we jump into our look, listen, learns, where can our listeners find your book, find your, your podcast, yeah, all podcast. the great places to connect with you? So you can find my podcast. It's Psychologists Off the Clock. And if you love Missy and Suzanne's podcast, hopefully you'll like ours too. We talk a lot about various ideas and evidence-based psychology, a lot about parenting, but other topics as well. And then if you're interested in calming elephants and other relationship, uh, <laughs> science-backed relationship advice, I'm actually starting in, in May a new newsletter called Relational, The Art and Science of Growing Connection. That is going to be housed at the Growth Equation, and the link will be up through my website, which is yaelshonebrun.com. So it hasn't started yet, but I'm really excited. This has been in the works for a while, and it's going to be very focused on relationships, but relationships between partners, relationships between parents and kids, and also relationships between roles. So excited about that. I know. Signing up immediately. We'll put that all in the show notes and in our socials. Great. Thank you so much. Well, with that, we can jump into our look, listen, learns. And if there's anybody new to the show, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And at the end of each show, we'd like to just spend a couple minutes talking about what we are all looking and listening and learning about. And we don't like to put our guests in the hot seat first. So then I'm going to have Missy. Why don't you kick it off this week? Okay, let's see. I have been taking shifts with this sick dog of ours. I won't even go into that on mm. the details because they're gross um, <laughs> but we have been taking shifts trying to like like you have a newborn basically like both of us need some uninterrupted sleep while the other one can be on high alert for when he needs to go out mm. ah, so in my shift i watched pretty baby the new brooke shields documentary it just came out this week yes and i love brooke shields like i've always loved brooke shields the doc is fine it's two episodes. It didn't rock my world. It may have been that I was exhausted. Maybe I should watch it after some sleep. Um, <laughs> but it was just, it was interesting. It covers her entire span from being a baby. She was a baby model all the way up until now. Um, she's had a really fascinating life, most of which we're all aware of. She's been in the public eye our whole lives. Yeah. But it was it was interesting to watch it replayed and the dynamic with her mom is very interesting. I don't feel like I is got it interesting, gross or interesting, inspiring, um, interesting, sad, mm. sad. It was a sad relationship. And when she talks about it now, like you, there's a lot of sadness there. It was a really complicated relationship, but she was, she was her mom's meal ticket is what she was. You know, yeah. that is so, I just read, and I just said we're tied on time, and then I'm going to go rambling, but I'm going to make this really quick. But for the, like the mom blogger world out there, I just read an article about one of the kids who's now approaching 18, oh, wow. who is having a very, like, I did not give consent to be in all those videos, pictures, whatever, and is waiting until their 18th birthday, and they are going to blow some stuff up, I think, as far as exposing stuff that went on you know just uh, which i don't think is necessarily the healthiest way to address your family right. issues yeah. but it it made me think that a lot of those kids that the mommy bloggers yeah. are coming of age and they're gonna have some stories to tell so y'all yeah watch yeah. out <laughs> which yeah. i mean well, when you watch this doc you realize like and she says it like she didn't have her own mind she was conditioned to sit still and look pretty mm. and to just it was all just okay and the things that i mean 
we all remember the movie she was in. Like, a lot of Blue those were Lagoon. not appropriate. Yeah, Blue Lagoon, and... not appropriate <laughs> for, like, yeah, she was, like, a preteen. No. They were showing clips of Blue Lagoon, and I'm like, I can't, can't believe this was considered okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not. You know, it's just her becoming an adult and learning her own mind at that part is really pretty inspirational Um, and she's still just so beautiful and she's a really smart woman so it's interesting to watch that evolution of her so I I didn't when I say the doc was meh I think it might have been that I was tired but also like it was not riveting but it is interesting and I have thought about it since watching it um, Probably because it's so, not like super highs and lows of scandalous type no, of thing. No, it's, so it's not. It's not that. like watching a yeah like a gotcha kind of thing or a yeah. crime investigation. It's not that. Um, and she talks about an assault, and she doesn't go into detail. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. We're not busting this guy. It's not that kind of documentary. It's just talking about about where she has, where she came from, and where she is now. Interesting. Um, so I liked it. I did like it. I have recommend it. And then I haven't learned a ton other than how to take care of two <laughs> ailing animals. I mean, I've got an old one who's injured and a young one who is sick. And I don't I don't even know how this all happened in the same week. <laughs> it's not fair. Uh, you're, you're the dog sandwich generation. You <laughs> <Yes>. are. <laughs> yeah, and I, so I've learned a lot about dog care that I never wanted to know. Um <laughs> So that's my learn, and I can't even pass it on. But if you want to know things about IV fluids and things, Aww. I can tell you. Message Missy. Poor <laughs> yeah. puppies. Let me know. Poor um, puppies. And then I'm going to share an item that I adore. It's a splurge. It's the Spanx Air Essentials Pants. They are the softest things I've ever put on my body. They are not cheap, but I want to wear them 24-7. I'm not sure they'll be a great summer Maybe not. They're not too heavy. Well, I'm not actually Texas. like touching them because I'm wearing them now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> um, show us Missy. <laughs> <laughs> They're just black pants. There's nothing to see, but they are so soft, so comfortable. They come in a couple different cuts. They also have tops, which I have not splurged on, but I think there's a couple t-shirts. I can't really bring myself to buy a hundred and something dollar t-shirt. Oh. I just can't do it. It might yeah, not be that know, much. Maybe the t-shirt's not that much, but it's not cheap. It's more than... The ten dollar T shirt I typically buy. I was gonna say so. I got my my finest Costco shirt on today. Right. <laughs> this is also Costco. <laughs> We're so gross. Um, so yeah, it's a balance. I got my Costco top and my Spanx bottoms. All about balance. Um, but I love it's that them, high so low, high and yeah, low end combination. Very on trend. <laughs> yeah, but if you're looking for like, they would be amazing travel pants. Or they're amazing. You're exhausted because you've been caring for sick dogs and you just want to be comfortable pants. They are good for nice. that. Nice. So. All right. So that's me. What are you what up about- to, you, Al? Um, all right. So I have been binging with my husband. My husband has prompted this. I tell if I'm really into it or if I'm just too lazy to push against it. But we've been watching this show called Letter Kenny, which is about a small Canadian town and their problems. And it's sort of like a combination. This is this is my assessment. Nobody else's, but I think it's a combination of Sunny in Philadelphia and Gilmore Girl. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He talks so fast and the characters are all really attractive. Well, not all of them, but a few of them. And the town itself is sort of a character. So that's kind of like Gilmore Girls. And then Uh it's like sunny in Philadelphia because none of them do anything. And it's kind of dark and twisted humor. (laughs) Oh, my God. We just started watching that. (laughs) They're so bad. Every time a title comes up for sunny in Philadelphia, we're like, Oh, God, I'm going to cringe. It's so bad. It's so dark. Yeah. And like you can only watch one at a time before you start getting really uncomfortable. So when I say binge, it's like we watch one at night. 
Yes. And they're only like 25 minutes long, so it's not a huge amount of time, but like we watch one every night and I'm like, is, is this good for me? <laughs> Do I like this? But I can't quit it. <laughs> and then I just finished reading. and I So I usually have one novel going and then a few nonfiction just because uh, nonfiction is part of what I do for work with right. my podcast and I'm a writer. But in terms of the novel, I just finished Stephen King's Fairy Tale, oh. which is really, really long. And I actually I listened to it on Audible, so I didn't technically read it. And I actually bought it because we listened to Harry Potter, me with my three boys, and it recommended, oh, oh if you like Harry Potter, you might also like this. I started listening to it and it's so full of profanity. Oh, no. That, like, you know, five minutes and I was like, okay, my six-year-old cannot be exposed to this. Like, I'm not such a purist, but it has so much profanity. Yeah. The story is great. I mean, Stephen King is brilliant. And it's also really, really long. I think it was like 24 hours in yeah. the audible version. Well, that's so. his thing. But yeah. I recommend it. Yeah. It was good. And then in terms of nonfiction, what I'm learning is my nonfiction taught me all about mindset. So I just finished this book called The Expectation Effect by David Robeson. That's all about how what we expect, like in every area of our life, has so much more of an impact on us than we ever would imagine. So things like our fitness, our productivity, our lifespan, our intelligence, our happiness. It's fascinating and it's also kind of trippy because you recognize how much what you think is going to happen has an impact like at a really fundamental physiological level. And I think it is a really transformative book. I'm actually going to have him on our podcast. The episode will probably air in the summer, but I'm so excited to talk to him because it's this kind of stuff that I'm like, the power of the mind is so mm-hmm. cool. That is so cool. So, well, you know, that's interesting because you hear so many people who say that they just have low expectations, so they're never disappointed, which makes me think that that's really dangerous then. Right. It's... It can be. Yeah, it can be. I mean, and obviously, you know, there's some balance, like no matter, like if I expect myself to live forever, it's still not going to happen. Yes. But there is, there is toxic positivity to the mass. Yes. Yes. But there's interesting evidence that really believing in possibilities of losing weight, of gaining a skill, of being more happy really has positive impact on you being able to achieve those things. It's, it's really incredible. And I obviously... There are limits, but he talks about all this really fascinating science that really shows the power of expectations. Okay. Oh, I love okay. that. I'm you love that. Miss, we call Missy, oh. she loves brain stuff. We just call it brain, brain stuff, stuff because our <laughs> <laughs> minds are amazing. So They're cool. amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Let's see. Is it my awesome. turn then? I think it's your turn. What do you look listening and learning, Suzanne? Uh, let's see. I am listening to, because I do listen to most of my books because I'm, well, I'm still not doing Cap 10K training. Didn't I complain about that last week? I still have not started. I got two weeks. By the time this episode <laughs> runs, it will be passed and we will know whether or not you survive. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure my body will just remember that it ran a half marathon a few months ago. Just believe. Just accept. Yes, just believe. Gonna, That's right. <laughs> that I'm going to do my best time. Well, do you, so there's this one part in the book where he talks about um, they did this study of athletes doing visualization exercise and they found that their muscle tone actually improved. So just do some, you don't have to do the movement. I mean, it's like 10% improvement. So it's like moderate, but, um, but but you can use visual exercises to increase your muscle capacity. Oh, can I visualize my tummy going in a little bit? <laughs> I, was just, I was just visualizing my 20-year-old body, and I'm going to see what happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been listening to um, The Book of Goose, 
which I had never heard of probably because it's super fancy. It is for my literary book club. I've got uh -huh. two book clubs. I've got my book club book club and then I've got my fancy book club where it's real books and people actually talk about the book at the club. And so it's about these two 13-year-old friends in post-war France who, as far as I can tell, have zero parental supervision who just like, I don't know, they devised this plan for Fabienne to dictate. And Fabienne, how do I describe her? She's like the bad influence Okay. And she's just like that bossy friend who always has the ideas and you just kind of follow along. So that's yep. Fabienne. Uh, you know, they would just go hang out in the cemetery and they'd lay on the graves for a while. And this poor girl, like, could not get up until it was Fabienne's idea to get up. Like, it's just like this, this brain game. It's deep in these, this relationship. So Fabienne decides she wants to write a book and she does not know how to write. So I would say Agnes usually, but since I've been listening to the book, I'll say Agnes um, oh. <laughs> yeah, um, is writing. And she decides to act as the author because Fabienne's like, no one would believe I wrote this book anyway because everybody thinks I'm hopeless and like that I'm this bad kid. And so you might as well just pretend you're the author. And the book has won pretty much every award possible but i was just looking at the reviews on amazon because the book the book club is coming up next week and i'm like i have to have something smart to say and but what if a, one of the reviews said it's the seinfeld of literary fiction in that it's it's this idea that it's a story about nothing and mm -hmm. but it's it was a fun callback to that age when like spending time with your friends really was nothing but it was everything at yes. the same time so, I mean, they write this book together and, you know, and yes, goes to Paris sometimes and does this other stuff to go publicize the book. But other than that, it's just like super into the dynamics and this power play between the two girls and, you know, this idea, you know, we've all had that charismatic friend who calls all the shots and we're just like, right. okay, right. okay, Fabian. So that was kind of interesting. And I mean, it's, it's not a page turner that I'm like, oh, I can't wait till I get back to it. But whenever I'm listening to it, it's very interesting and a really beautiful way of looking at the dynamics of friendships and relationships. Yeah. So that has been fun. I don't know. Have I been talking about how I've been watching alone where they just leave no. people in the woods for a while? Oh my gosh. Oh, I watched that with my kids a few seasons. They oh love it. my <laughs> gosh. I can't believe I haven't been talking about it because we went back to it. We watched it during the pandemic, which was a yeah. little rough to do after the, I think maybe we did two seasons and then it just, you know, you feel closed in and they're kind of closed in and alone. And it's just like, it put us in a weird place. So the kids felt they were finally mentally ready to watch it again. So we've been watching again. Oh, it's so sad for my little vegetarian daughter to watch all these squirrels with arrows through their eyes and stuff. And so oh. I know. Well, you got to eat. I'm sure this is for me. You got to eat. Um, yeah. It's, it's, like a, it, it's like an uncomfortable show to watch. I mean, they also, all of them lose like, you know, massive amounts of weight and they look so unhealthy and then oh, they're it's... like eating like eels from the ground or, you or know, just moths. Mice, mice that they like squashed under rocks. Pretty yeah. Easy. Oh, and they all, at some point, they're just all I like, would I have not pooped in eight days. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, God. Yeah, oh, Missy, you got to watch it. I, <laughs> I swear. Okay. you. I'm apologizing in advance in case I did. I feel like I may have talked about this in another look, look listen, learn. So if... If I did, y'all alone. Apparently, it's sticking with me because I just can't yeah, stop talking. I don't talking remember talking about it. I feel like it. I would remember 
a discussion of this show and I don't. Yes. Well, my son's physical therapist told us that there is a season where someone actually gets a moose. This was the season where they kept on like the big image for the season's a bear. And so they kept on teasing like, oh, there's bear tracks and all the bear. And like literally the biggest thing they've gotten is a grouse. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh. oh, no, that's not true. They got a beaver. That was a big thing. And we've learned the ins and outs of when you should stop eating the beaver because it will send you off the island in a helicopter for food poisoning. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't watch that season. Oh, <laughs> my God. I think it's the most recent one. But, okay. yes, it's very, I don't know why it's fun. I would not we, survive. I would not survive. Oh, no. And that's what the biggest takeaway. My husband is like, this just makes me so shocked that human species has right made it this far like how we're all evolved from like but it's the because we stuff. live in groups and the yes. whole thing is that they do it alone so that's why it's so dangerous because yes. that's not how that's not how we survived at all that is what <laughs> no. i said yes so i said the group but then also the fact of moving and migration because you know they're stuck with their little plot of area and i guess in theory they could leave but Oh, I don't think that. Yeah. Then they just bump into someone else's territory <laughs> and they get in trouble. <laughs> oh, my daughter really wants to do a mashup of Alone and Hunger Games, not in the like actually That's killing what it people. Like when you were talking not about. in killing people, but so that you can actually go sabotage the other <laughs> contestants <laughs> and like go take their stuff. <laughs> yeah, she's a devious little mind. But anyway, <laughs> I feel so bad cuz we watch it while we eat dinner. And so oh, we're just sitting there with like pizza and beer and just like, oh, they look really hungry. <laughs> That's like we have the Boston Marathon um, happening this coming Monday. And oh, yeah. like we, I would go with my little boys and we like bring snacks and watch these people running a marathon. How like, <laughs> <so> evil. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, that, looks hard. that looks hard. They look tired. <laughs> oh, my gosh. OK. And I'm sure I learned something. But we I've learned sure that since I was that. late because my dogs would not get in the Create that it is time for me to not have a learn. So yes, I think we can wrap it up. Oh my gosh, We're this just... is amazing. I hope everybody checks out the podcast, the newsletter, the book, all of it. It's just it's the perfect the, marriage. Our I'm putting the book up here for the two people who watch it on YouTube. Mom, uh, work. <laughs> yeah, hi, mom. Mom and mom. <laughs> nice work to meet you, Missy and Suzanne's moms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, but thank you so much for joining us. The thank you so much for having me. This was so such a good. treat. Thank you. You guys oh. have a wonderful podcast. You're so awesome. And I'm I'm really delighted to have the chance to speak with you. Thank you, us thank too. You. All thank right. You. Have well, a great rest of your afternoon and enjoy yeah. the marathon this weekend. Yes. <laughs> think of Watching me. It, that is. Watching it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for the mom and dot, dot, dot podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show today. And if you know someone else who could benefit from today's episode, be sure to share it with them. Also, please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find links to all the things we discussed today in the show notes over at our website, momandpodcast.com with the A-N-D spelled out. In between shows, you can find us at the socials, including our private mom and community Facebook group. You can find links to the group, all of our socials, and our questions and comments section over at our website, momandpodcast.com. Thank you so much for your support. We appreciate you so much. Now go out there and make your ellipses count.